Hello, I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Welcome to the program. Today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Gary Taubes. I'm sure many of you know of Gary Taubes. He's an incredible uh, medical researcher. He is uh, an investigative science and health journalist. He's also the co-founder of the not-for-profit organization called Nutrition Science Initiative. Uh, their website is NUSI, N-U-S-I dot O-R-G, and we're going to be talking to him about that. Uh, but Gary Taubes is the author of Why We Get Fat and What uh, to Do About It. Also, the really uh, groundbreaking book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. Uh, Gary is very much responsible uh, for the notion that it isn't fat that makes people fat. It's, it's uh, carbohydrates and simple sugars. Uh, he is the recipient of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Investigator Award in Health Policy Research. And he's also been, uh, been awarded the National Association of Science Writers Science in Society Journalism Award. And he got that in 1996, 1999, and in 2001. And he is the only print journalist to have received that award three times. Uh, he is a graduate of Harvard and uh, went on to get a degree at Stanford and ultimately ended up at Columbia University getting a degree in journalism. His uh, original degree was actually in applied physics. So he is a, a very um, accomplished individual and I'm very much looking forward to the interview. So let's get started. Well, welcome Gary Taubes. I want to just tell you right off the bat, uh, I'm a huge fan and I certainly get what it's like to uh, sort of be the odd man out and I think wow you're you're much more of uh, involved in that than I have been in terms of blazing the trail uh, really uh, breaking the mold being a bit iconoclastic with your whole notion about uh, fat and carbohydrates so you've probably been asked this before but I'd really like to know why did you do it uh, well I was just following the data I was a uh, investigative science journalist who got uh involved in, uh, actually some of my friends in the physics community suggested that if I was interested in bad science, I should look at what was going on in public health. And uh, so I just started doing a series of investigative pieces for the journal Science that led by the late 90s to, journal, uh, to nutrition. And uh, I'd say my physics friends were right. The science was pretty bad. And uh, you know, one thing led to another. I wish I could say I had an agenda when I started. I had a completely open mind. I was eating the diet that we were all being told to eat in the diet. And uh, the, I had trouble finding science to support that, which is a common story in people who go looking for the well, evidence. Well, you know, a lot of the work that really was used to justify the notion that carbs are important, that whole grains are great, and that fat uh, should be demonized, I mean, you were very critical of that research with, I, I think, really good reason because much of that, I think, was observational types of study with very little, even recently, very little interventional type of work. So what did you uncover in terms of the foundation that really led us all to go low-fat, no-fat? Well, even back in the 1960s, the researchers were aware back then that they had to do interventional studies and they couldn't rely on observation. Um, you could see in the interventional studies a severe selection bias. Uh, they would basically find uh, some effect in their intervention that confirmed their, their biases, and that's what they would publish. And if they would ignore the, the negative effects that the same diets cause. Sometimes in one study in particular, the largest study ever done, 
that seemed to refute the hypothesis that dietary fat was the cause of heart disease. They simply didn't publish the study for 16 years. So that kind of selection bias is the, exactly what you'd expect to see in what uh, is often known as pathological science or the science of things that aren't so. Why does the name Ansel Keys come to mind? <laughs> yeah, Ansel Keys was the uh, primary proponent of this idea that dietary fat causes heart disease. Ansel uh, was the <clears throat> University of Michigan uh, nutritionist who was very uh, almost ruthless in getting his opinions uh, embraced as facts. Uh, Keys himself never acted. Well, he was, I take that back, he was a co author on the study that wasn't published for 16 years. So he did indeed do at least one uh, intervention trial, but he based his opinions on uh, his observational studies on this famous seven country study that they published in 1970. And, you know, these guys just convinced themselves they were right. Often when I discuss this, I, I talk about Richard Feynman, the great Nobel Prize winner in physics, who said the first principle in science is that you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. And people like Ansel Keys and their colleagues convinced themselves pretty easy, early that what they believed had to be correct. It was the exact opposite of what I'd argue you need to establish reliable knowledge. So really what I hear you saying is you found a great opportunity in uh, being able to look at the data that was the underpinning of really all of the dietary recommendations in, in the Western world and really found that that information was flawed from a scientific perspective in terms of good science, obviously beginning with data manipulation uh, early on. Why do you suppose it was so well embraced? Because people needed some excuse? Well, I think what happened, and I go into this in my first book on the subject, Good Calories, Bad Calories, um, a lot of this research was being pursued by physicians, and physicians are kind of trained to think that you, um, you have a patient who's sick, who may be dying, and you have, to make, you have to basically take your best guess at what the problem is and then act. And this is completely contrary to what scientists would argue, which is that you uh, don't come to conclusions until you've rigorously and methodically ruled out every possible alternative explanation for what you might be seeing. But this physician perspective drove the public health authorities who also said, look, half the, half the men in America are dying of heart disease. We're pretty confident it's got a dietary uh, trigger to it. We're pretty you know, we, we believe with good reason that dietary fat is a problem. And yeah, sure, we're having trouble demonstrating it in trials, but that's always a problem. But in the meanwhile, we have to act. And they assume that as better data came in, they would adjust their actions to fit the data or their recommendations to fit the data. But that turned out to be naive. What people tend to do once they've acted publicly or established an opinion publicly is then to try and confirm it. And nobody wants to go back and say, you know, I was wrong, we were wrong, the government was wrong. So you try to, in effect, prove that you were right all along. It's a common phenomenon known as cognitive dissonance. And uh, all of this led to, you know, basically where we are today with obesity and diabetes epidemics and uh, the government still struggling to come up with some kind of dietary guidelines that will bring these into, uh, into control. 
Well, that said, you know, it takes me to the, the recent dietary recommendations uh, that were actually published. And I think your organization uh, was uh, somewhat critical of the recent publication. But, you know, let's all agree that they at least finally focused on the powerful uh, role, the detrimental role of added sugar to our food and really um, kind of left the saturated fat mentality still hanging and but did sort of begin to embrace the notion that dietary cholesterol may not need to be demonized. Uh, yeah, they finally are leaving dietary cholesterol behind. As I like to point out, it was actually first demonstrated in, in 1937, if I remember correctly, that dietary cholesterol has a very limited uh, influence on serum cholesterol. And then you get to this question of whether serum cholesterol is what we should be worried about, even if dietary cholesterol does influence. So you could say that the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, uh, 80 years after the fact, is finally getting in line with the science. That's a good thing. Um, the, as you put it, they're still leaving saturated fat uh, hanging. And yes, they're, they're finally focusing on sugar. Although, again, keep in mind, this is a dietary vital Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, we have yet to see actually what the dietary guidelines themselves will look like. Well, just to get back to cholesterol, you know, as you and I are having this conversation right now, this is the week that we're seeing the approval of an injectable form of a cholesterol-lowering agent. It acts kind of in a different way in comparison to the statins or HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors. And I, I don't ever remember a time when a drug has received approval like this, having never proven to have any clinical benefit. I mean, those studies aren't even completed yet in terms of stroke and coronary uh, events, but yet the drug has been, uh, it looks like it's being fast-tracked for approval. But that said, you know, as far as cholesterol goes, here's the precursor from which the body makes vitamin D and all the steroid hormones, an integral part of the cell membrane of every cell in the body. And yet we seem to have embraced the notion that the lower the better. We've got to, we've demonized that like we've demonized dietary fat. So, you know, what you've done uh, is really changed our perspective on this notion of calories in versus calories out as it relates to weight loss. And I think there was a lot of traction in that uh, outdated mentality in terms of the fat recommendation in recognizing that fat has double the calories per gram in comparison to carbohydrates. I learned the calories in, calorie out uh, mentality in early on, certainly not in medical school. We didn't learn about nutrition there. But what was the revelation for you that there's more to life than simply how many calories we take in versus how many we burn during our normal metabolism? You know, I wish I could say there was a moment of revelation when I realized this was wrong. Um, if you go back and read my first really controversial article on this field, which was a New York Times Magazine cover story back in 2002, I still believe this notion that obesity was all about energy balance, how many calories we come in versus extent. And then when I did my research for my first book, which the research and writing took me five years of my life, um, even there I'm kind of surprised at how much I didn't hammer on what I've now come to think is the nonsensical nature of that advice. Um, it's as though we had a theory of poverty that said it was a money balance issue and poor people are poor because they spend more money than they make. Or rich people are rich because they make more money than they spend. An excellent analogy. 
you know, and it's, it's on some levels now when I talk about it, one of my problems I have communicating with the field in general is I can't believe anyone could actually take this idea seriously. And yet it's been the conventional wisdom in the United States since the 1950s. As I point out, prior to the Second World War, this was uh, German and Austrian clinicians who were the leading medical researchers in the world had come to perceive obesity as a hormonal regulatory defect. Um, then that school was lost with World War II. After the war, we just embraced this idea that it's all about calories, it's all about taking in too many or not expending enough. Um, there's a whole host of observations that you simply, about obesity that you simply can't explain, even begin to explain with this calories in, calories out notion. And yet it's driven, it's the almost, you could say it's the fundamental pillar of all nutrition research ever since. Um, you know, one of the things I liked uh, in, in Why We Get Fat uh, is you, you take us back to uh, the early part of the 20th century and review what medical doctors were telling us in terms of dietary recommendations. And back then, it seems based upon the quotes that you included, they were spot on in terms of what's making us fat. Well, that's as late as the 1960s, the conventional wisdom were carbohydrates for fattening. People didn't really know what that meant, but they knew that, and particularly women, if they ate carbohydrates or all kinds of, you know, would go, quote, right to their hips or right to their butt. It was just, you could find articles in the, the British obesity, in the British nutrition literature saying, and one of my favorites written by one of the two leading British dietitians in the 1960s is that every woman knows that carbohydrates are fattening. Um, and then <clears throat> when we decided that dietary fat caused heart disease, our nutrition uh, authorities and all their wisdom decided, therefore, since heart disease and obesity go hand in hand, dietary fat must also cause obesity, and we flip this logic. But you again, know, when I, I lecture on this, one of the points I make to, I try to, to try and get the medical community to open up to this idea that they've misconceived something as seemingly simple as obesity, is to say, look, if, if I were to mention the names of the great physicists pre-World War II, um, names like Einstein and Schrodinger and Planck and Dirac and Bohr. They're names that even medical students would recognize. But if I were to mention their equivalents in medicine, nobody would know who these people were. <clears throat> Von Norden, Graf, Bauer, uh, Zondek, they're all names that mean nothing to us. And we just, we took this all the learning that occurred, this brilliant science that was done pre-World War II, and we just left it behind with the war. And as a result, part of this was this, again, this idea that obesity is a hormonal regulatory disorder. By the 1960s, uh, with the invention of a technique to measure hormones in the bloodstream, we identify insulin as a primary hormone that, that puts fat in fat tissue and works to keep it there. And we secrete insulin to the carbohydrate content of the diet for all intents and purposes. And so the argument is, by the mid-1960s, we should have been saying, hey, look, we, we now understand the mechanism by which the conventional wisdom works, which is that carbohydrates are fattening. And instead, it was all sort of plowed under the rug in our pursuit of dietary fat as a cause of heart disease. I want to just go back to something you just said because I really want to emphasize it for our viewers, and that is you're talking about the role of insulin. I mean, most healthcare practitioners would 
conceive of insulin as being the primary hormone that we've got to pay attention to because of its role in basically sequestering glucose intracellularly, dealing with elevated blood glucose. And yet you mentioned that insulin has this very powerful role in lipogenesis, in creating fat and locking fat up within our cells, making it less able to be utilized, ultimately leading us to having more problems in terms of trying to lose weight. So that's a different perspective on insulin's function in, in human physiology that I think clearly uh, many of our viewers may not be aware of. Well, this is, um, and many physicians is not, although, as well, although what's fascinating is if you go to the medical textbooks, endocrinology, biochemistry textbooks, and you look up adipocyte, which is a technical term for a fat cell, and you look at what puts, you know, what uh, hormones work to put fat in fat cells, it will implicate insulin and high blood glucose, which stimulates insulin secretion. So physicians will learn that insulin, as you put, is a lipogenic hormone. It works to lock fat away in the fat tissue. And then the same textbooks will have a chapter or section on obesity in which they'll talk about obesity being caused by taking in too many calories they expend. So um, even though physicians should be aware of this lipogenic aspect of insulin, all hormones do many things in the body. Our bodies didn't evolve to be so simplistic as to have sort of one molecule, one function. Um, they've been taught that this is simply irrelevant to the causation of this chronic disease or chronic disorder that's now arguably the biggest threat to our healthcare system that we've ever faced. You know, one, uh, a lot of what you talked about in the book uh, dealt with this from a mechanistic perspective. And also, I think, was interesting in that, and you've been called on this before, that uh, you... you um, challenge the wisdom of trying to exercise our weight down. And I thought your argument was very, very powerful. And I know people have uh, considered that not to be necessarily on target. Tell us about that. Well, going against the efficacy of uh, exercise uh, to make us healthier in this day and age is something that can get a person in real trouble. Um, What's next from Gary Taubes? Yeah, what's next? He doesn't like fruit. He's not a big fan of exercise, despite the fact I'm, a, I'm an athlete. I've been a jock my whole life. I go to the gym regularly, or at least I used to. Um, so the argument's pretty simple. And it's, I want again, when I lecture on this, I like to start with a, uh, a, a report that was published in 2007 by the American Heart Association in collaboration with the American College of Sports Medicine in which they pointed out that this hypothesis that increasing your energy expenditure will lead to weight loss is the evidence in support of it is uncompelling. And the argument I make is this hypothesis has been around for about 100 years, 150 years, depending on how you want to date it. And again, in physics, I was taught by my friends in the physics community that if a hypothesis has been around for 150 years and you still don't have compelling evidence to support it, you should seriously consider the possibility it's wrong. So again, this idea is that we get fat merely because of this caloric imbalance, and if we can increase our expenditure, uh, we'll keep our intake the same, and now we'll just draw more calories out of the fat tissue, and this will lead to weight loss. And uh, again, it, 
used to be the conventional wisdom was that if you increased your exercise, if you played two sets of tennis or 18 holes of golf or went for a hike, that would increase your appetite. In fact, there used to be this concept of building up an appetite. So if you worked at hard manual labor for eight hours, you would have a larger, greater appetite than, say, a tailor who sat at his desk for the same eight hours. And this was, again, conventional wisdom. Um, these two variables, how much we eat and how much we exercise, are not independent variables. You can't just manipulate one without manipulating the other. And if you embrace this idea that the body very carefully regulates its fat supplies, its fat stores, and the amount of fat it makes available for fuel and how it takes up those uh, fatty acids in our bloodstream to use for fuel, then there's actually no reason to think that by increasing your energy expenditure, you would indeed do anything other than make yourself hungry. And again, we'd never, you know, my argument could be easily refuted by clinical trials that demonstrated that uh, if you randomize subjects to an exercise program versus no exercise program, the ones who exercise would lose more weight. But in fact, the clinical trials have been done show that there's an infinitesimal effect at best from physical act that kind of physical activity. From, from my perspective as a neurologist, I just want to be uh, clear that you know my um, push for aerobic exercise has been because of its effect on increasing what's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, really important for the health of brain cells and even to grow uh, new brain cells, neurogenesis. You've said in the past that we get fat not because we overeat, rather we get, we're fat not because we overeat, but we're, uh, we overeat because we are fat. So there's a signaling issue with reference to, to fat cells that, that is affecting our appetite. Could you tell us about that? Well, I would actually phrase it differently. I would say we overeat because we are getting fat getting or fat. storing calories as fat. So again, it's a pretty simple concept. Uh, you could imagine a growing child as an example. So as a child's growing, they tend to have, they eat more than when they're not. Uh, those of us who are parents, we, I think we often wonder when our kids are have particularly voracious appetites when they're eating us out of house and home that they're probably going through a growth spurt. And we have all these phrases, you know, my adolescent child, son will lie around the house all day long. He'll, he, you know, I mean, we have a friend uh, whose 15-year-old son we spent some time with uh, this month who is lean and athletic, and if I had to feed this kid, he would drive me into bankruptcy. You know, but he's going through puberty, he's growing, his body is putting on muscle, he's an athlete. Um, all these growth phenomena drive appetite. And you could say this is always the case. You know, cancer cells actually upregulate um, uh, insulin receptors so that they could suck in more blood sugar from the environment to fuel this ferocious growth that they're undergoing. But they don't grow because they're taking in so much glucose, just like the 15-year-old uh, son of our friend doesn't grow because he's eating so much. He's eating so much because he's growing. And the argument with obesity is, in effect, the same thing. Something dysregulates our fat tissue to want to take up too many calories of fat. Again, this was the pre-World War II German-Austrian thinking. 
So we have these hormones and enzymes that regulate how much fat we store. Now they're, they're dysregulated, something's broken, and they're driving them to take up excess calories. And that drive to take up excess calories, that the increase in fat stores starves the rest of the body of these calories. And these people respond by either eating more or exercising less. And you could demonstrate this in virtually every animal model of obesity that's ever been uh, created. You can, uh, for instance, the first animal models of obesity, they lesion the part of the brain called the ventral medial hypothalamus, excuse me, ventral medial, ventral medial hypothalamus of the rat, VMH lesions. And these lesions would make the animals have this extraordinary hunger and get fat. But they could also control the amount of calories that these animals ate after the surgery. They could, in fact, restrict their calories so they couldn't eat any more than they ever did, or even less than they ever did, and they would get fat anyway. So the idea is you dysregulate the fat tissue, that sucks up calories, the body has to respond to that loss of calories by trying to take in more, and that's where the hunger comes from. And just like growth phenomena, 15-year-old kid, he's growing, he's going through puberty, his body needs fuel. That's where the hunger comes from. But when we cut back on our carbs and start burning fat as a calorie resource, uh, then we might enter into ketosis, and that might strike fear into some people. Well, again, that's one of the ideas. There were a lot of these ideas that were floating around in the 1960s nutrition community that doctors without any real scientific training were embracing without really thinking about them very clearly. And one of them was this idea of being in ketosis. So we know that uncontrolled diabetics often die of ketoacidotic shock and these they they can't metabolize the glucose in their diets or the fat that they've stored. And so their livers are creating out of the fat that's flowing through their bodies. The livers are creating what's called ketone bodies. And levels of ketones can reach enormous proportions. And it goes along with basically their bodies collapsing in this ketoacidotic shock. Um, when you don't eat carbohydrates in your diet and you eat a, a high fat diet, or if you just fast for a few days, your body responds by creating, the liver responds by creating ketones from the fat that's now being released from your fat tissue, and the ketones are used to fuel your brain and other organs. And because of this relationship to ketoacidotic shock, the medical community decided this must be dangerous. Again, they had no studies, no clinical trials testing the benefits or, or, or risks of these diets. They just latched on this uh, idea that you want to keep ketones low. Uh, and it was fueled in large part by the crazy success of, of Robert Atkins' book, you know, Dr. Atkins' Diet Revolution in the early 70s. So just as the medical community is deciding that dietary fat causes heart disease, again, they haven't proved it, but it's becoming a consensus. Atkins comes along and advocates this high-fat, uh, high-saturated fat, uh, ketogenic diet, and the medical researchers, the public health authorities are legitimately scared that people are going to go on this diet and that's going to cause heart disease. And even if they lose weight, they're going to die of heart attacks. So they respond by sort of 
playing up this idea that a ketogenic diet, a diet that raises ketone levels in the very minimal way that these diets do, is going to be deadly. Well, you know, in your book, I think there's a quote that, uh, if I'm quoting it correctly, paraphrasing rather, that you indicated that a mild level of ketosis might well be the natural, normal state of human physiology or human well, metabolism. Yeah, and that's um, me speculating, um, as I'll now admit. The, um, the point is there's an evolutionary basis to these arguments as well. One of the things I did in my books was I brought together multiple lines of thinking from multiple fields. So, for instance, British nutritionists in the 1960s and 1970s were much more concerned about the carbohydrate and the sugar and refined grain content of the diets than were American nutritionists who were being sort of driven by this Ansel Keys character. Uh, there was evolutionary arguments being made that we should eat the diets that we evolved to eat over the two million years uh, during which our species existed as hunter-gatherers and had <clears throat> minimal carbohydrates in our diet. So we would have lived on, in effect, the, the fattest meat we could hunt or scavenge. And then, you know, some tubers and seasonal berries and whatever other carbohydrates we could find when we couldn't scavenge or hunt fatty meat. And under those conditions and during the winter conditions, the, quite likely uh, people eating these diets would be surviving on, you know, mild levels of ketones in their blood because they wouldn't be getting carbohydrates in their diets. But they did, they did store fat in the late summer and early fall because that's when the fruit ripened. There was fructose uh, and more, more so glucose, rather, that would stimulate insulin production, allow them to make fat. And that's what allowed us to survive. And that's quite likely true as well. And that's the interesting issue. Also, in fact, you, know, you would get a lot of seeds in the fall, which would be high in uh, polyunsaturated and unsaturated fats. Those could also stimulate uh, the body. It could be perceived as a signal to the body to store fat. Um, all of these evolutionary arguments, my brother, who's a mathematician, likes to remind me that they're just so stories, um, which and from the Kipling Just So books about how, for instance, the camel got their hump. Um, but you don't want to go against evolution. Well, and that's the, the, the primary idea here is that we didn't have any significant amount of carbohydrates, or certainly grains in our diet, until the agricultural revolution eight to 10,000 years ago. And we didn't have refined grains, highly refined wheat, sugar, until the last couple hundred years, when the amount of sugar and refined grains we consumed exploded. And this is a heartbeat in evolutionary history. And so the argument that I bought into is that if there is an aspect of a diet to which we're maladapted, these brand new foods which we're now eating in huge levels are quite most likely the one we should be blaming. Your not-for-profit organization, Nutrition Science Initiative, recently got a grant, uh, a substantial grant from the Robertson Foundation, and you guys are on your way over the next three years to uh, recruit lots of money uh, because you have a couple of very important goals in mind. Can you tell us about that? Okay, so I co-founded the Nutrition Science Initiative three years ago with a physician researcher named uh, Dr. Peter Atia. Uh, Peter is the president and CEO. My only title is co-founder. 
and I get to live 400 miles away from the offices in San Diego and try to finish a sugar book that's now three years overdue. Because I want to get there in just a minute because I have a couple <laughs> of questions about that. Yeah. So the idea behind the Nutrition Science Initiative is that the obesity and diabetes epidemics, as we know, are out of control. Obesity rates have increased roughly 250% from the 1960s through at least the early part of this century. Diabetes incidence is, prevalence has increased, if you believe the CDC numbers, uh, <clears throat> ninefold since the early 1960s. And our assumption is, is that if we really un understood the dietary triggers of these diseases, what takes somebody who's genetically predisposed and turns them into the obese diabetic phenotype that we see everywhere around us, that if we really understood what the cause of that was, we wouldn't be undergoing these epidemics. So we believe there are clinical trials that could be done, human studies that not only could be done, but should have been done 50 years ago that could resolve most of the controversies in the field. And it requires that they be done rigorously and methodically and critically. And unfortunately, doing those kinds of trials with humans instead of rats is, well, has been prohibitively expensive. So Peter and I started this with the goal that we would do one such trial. We were very naive that it would only cost $2 million and we could raise the money through crowdsourcing on the the internet. And after I did a uh, podcast with an economist at George Washington University, I heard from a foundation in Texas run by John and Laura Arnold saying they were interested in obesity research. I had mentioned some studies I thought should be done and we should talk about it. And after many conversations and Peter visiting Houston and uh, the Arnolds agreed to invest in NUSI, basically to give us seed money and to open offices in San Diego. One condition was that Peter be the president. So what we had planned on being a nights and weekends organization became Peter's full-time job and my wow. almost full-time job. And we started planning, speaking to researchers in the field, influential researchers, many of whom were skeptical of the ideas that we thought uh, that I advocated in my books. And we would sit down with these individuals and say, look, you believe this. We believe that. You would, I think, acknowledge, and they did, that the evidence for their beliefs are not definitive. And therefore, let us plan a series of studies such that in 10 years, we will have nothing to argue about. And they would have the expertise to do the studies. We would raise the money to get them done. And we began with significant funding from the Arnold Foundation to fund the first three studies in our pro program, this sort of a uh, uh, portfolio of studies that we believe need will eventually need to be done. And then uh, last year, we the Julian Robertson Foundation in New York agreed to give us uh, $7.5 million to help with these studies. Uh, I regret to say this is still a drop in the barrel of what ultimately will be needed, but we're making progress. The research is being done. Uh, we're we recently started a small pilot program looking at non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is now uh, associates with obesity and diabetes and is now also epidemic in America, particularly uh, among Hispanic children who are at very high risk of this disease. And, uh, you know, with luck, we'll keep this going. We'll keep 
we'll get more of these uh, high net worth individuals and, and interest in this idea that we may have made a mistake. Uh, the obesity, the, the chronic disease research community, the nutrition community, and our public health authorities may have actually simply misconceived the dietary triggers of these diseases, and that the only way we're really going to set it straight is by starting off getting the science right and doing these studies and establishing unambiguously, in effect, which hypotheses are right and which are wrong. You're, you're working on a new book on, uh, I guess, focused on sugar. And I'm curious, will there be much information in that uh, that deals with the effects of our diet on the microbiome and specifically sugar on the microbiome? You know, I'm smiling only because I realize it should. <laughs> and um, so my, uh, my goal with this book, with all my books, is to establish that the way I see it is, uh, is you know, imagine a crime has been committed. So the crime is we've caused obesity and diabetes in tens of millions of Americans. A significant portion of the population has this obese and diabetic phenotype that wouldn't have had it if we really understood what these causes of these diseases are. For the past 50, 60 years, we've blamed these diseases on eating too much dietary fat, maybe too much meat and eating too much of everything and not exercising enough. And if these hypotheses are wrong, these suspects, as I put it, are innocent, thinking of this as a criminal investigation, the question is, who should the prime suspect have been all along? Did we miss the most likely suspect? And what was the evidence that would have led us to indict that suspect if we had been not focused on the wrong suspects. And the argument I make, again, going back with sugar thousands of years and then hundreds of years and discussing this history, is that it was always the prime suspect for explaining the appearance of obesity, diabetes, what we now call metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance in populations. Um, and there are certainly links to what it must do to the gut biome. And I'll have to discuss this, and it's going to be in the last paragraph. One of the best examples... It's in the last paragraph of the whole book? I mean, book? excuse me, that it's the last book, yeah. Okay. Um, the last chapter of okay. the book, not the last. The, the chapter I have yet to write. Um, there's a fellow in the 1960s named Peter Cleave, a British uh, naval surgeon, head of the British uh, Naval Research Institute, who wrote a book, several books, uh, implicating refined grains and sugars in these Western diseases, obesity, diabetes, heart disease. Um, and he pointed out that the first sign, when you take a population and you Western it, so you take any population around the world that eats its traditional diet, and when it moves to a more Westernized diet, the first thing you see are the dental caries, cavities and tooth decay. And he said it's basically... Uh, naive to think that the same cause of cavities and tooth decay, which we know are going to be the refined grains and sugar in our diet, is not playing havoc with our, in, you know, our, our, our gastrointestinal tract all the way down. So, for instance, now, as you know, there's a, a tendency to want to gain, uh, blame uh, red meat consumption 
for changes in the gut biome that are associated with heart disease and, and diabetes and obesity. And, and Cleve would have said that's naive. If, if it's the carbs that are ruining our teeth, and the first sign, the first thing you see when you westernize a diet is, is you know, their, their teeth go to hell, and then they get fat, and then they become diabetic, and then they have heart disease, then why don't we blame these same carbs all the way down? Um, so to me, it's the obvious trigger that and, and the refined grains we're consuming, and I will make this argument because I have to, but I think we have enough evidence to indict sugar and maybe to convict it without even getting into the issue of what it's doing to the gut biome. And my issue with the gut biome is always is that we know that there, there have to be endocrinological regulatory phenomena that are causing um, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, and is the changes to the gut biome, do they lie directly in that pathway? So first we change the gut biome, then that has an effect on these other regulatory issues, or is it happening coincident with these other changes? Well, I think, you know, there are researchers who are, are trying to answer that question right now. I think the lead researcher is probably Max Newdorp in uh, Amsterdam. And he has actually characterized unique, almost fingerprint of the microbiome that correlates with things like type 2 diabetes and has gone even further, both in laboratory studies, uh, rodent studies, and even in humans now, in 250 plus individuals performing fecal microbial transplants and having a dramatic effect on their metabolic parameters that are, are were abnormal. So, you know, I'm not sure uh, which came first, but I think that it's going to be a multifactorial approach that's going to look at the direct effect of sugar in terms of uh, the insulin response and even glycation of proteins in terms of the inflammation that that uh, leads to, but also the effects upon the microbiome and the effects that that leads to in terms of more calorie extraction from a given meal. So, And this is what, although I would say it's not more calorie extraction, it might be more carbohydrate extraction or a uh, different kind of fatty acid profile. I knew when I said that, that you were going to object to that. <laughs> I should have known better. But this is, you could think of it as we all have, you know, we're all holding on to different uh, limbs of the elephant and different uh, protuberances from the elephant and then trying to figure out what it takes, what's, what's driving the elephant to stampede. And I'm beating this metaphor to death here. Right. But, um, and I don't know, I mean, it's in, the other issue is between uh, what causes these diseases to begin with and then how do you resolve them once, what does it take to resolve them once you've suffered from these disorders for 10, 20, 30 years? You know, with the book you held up, my book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, in an ideal world, I would have just called it Why We Get Fat, because that's what I'm pretty confident I can explain. The what you do about it uh, could involve all these issues, including, you know, sort of forcing this change on the microbiome. Um, and different degrees of carbohydrate restriction or different types of carbohydrate restricted diets with different fatty acid compositions. Um, some people may be beyond, you know, the point at which they can really uh, get their weight and diabetes status back under control by diet. But again, I can make a pretty compelling argument, I think, that, that 
we know what the cause is and what you have to ultimately remove or severely restrict in populations to prevent this from recurring. Well, let me validate your subtitle and indicate that and what you can do about it part of your subtitle uh, is works in clinical medicine. I mean, it works with patients and almost always. You know, we have some individuals and I believe them that have dramatically restricted their carbohydrates and are favoring higher levels of fat in their diets and still don't seem to lose a lot of weight. And uh, again, I, I think that the comments about, well, you're going to go ahead and exercise it away, that doesn't seem to work. So I, I tend to look uh, at the microbiome uh, as the next perhaps leverage point in, in these individuals. But uh, be, be, be assured that your comments about what can be done about it, they work in the real world. And uh, I think speaking for a lot of us who are um, involved in this and in, in, in recommending low carb for a variety of reasons, we, we're grateful to you for really doing what you've done to popularize this information. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a pun to say it's against the grain, but it is. Uh, and uh, many of us, I think, know what it's like to um, not be within the box and to be challenging the dogma. And that's what tends to lead to progress. So we've got to keep doing that. Well, thank you. This is actually what you bring up is one of, I think, the critical issues today. Public health guidelines tend to be driven by the field of nutritional epidemiology and or nutrition in general. And these people tend to look at populations, the epidemiologists, or they tend to look at animal studies and nutritionists. And what you see in the clinic is an entirely different perspective. And one of the things I would like the epidemiologist to understand is the clinical perspective or the patient perspective. Traditionally, the patient was always considered the last person you could trust particularly if they were obese, because you knew that they were, you thought that they were gluttons to begin with, and they were lying about how much they ate. And yet people go on these diets, and people who have struggled with their weight for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and suddenly they're not struggling anymore. They could eat to satiety, and their weight seems to normalize. In much the same way, you know, ketogenic diets have become very popular in the pediatric epilepsy community. And you talk to parents whose children had intractable epilepsy, seizures, you know, two, three, four times an hour, such that if you see these kids, they're often wearing football helmets when they're young and they're um, padded outfits, then no drugs work. And the parents uh, switch them onto a ketogenic diet. And in a third of these cases, the, the epilepsy is cured. The seizures just go away. And by the same token, you know, obese subjects who have fought and spent their whole life on diets, their whole life starving themselves, trying to exercise. They remove the carbohydrates from the diet, replace it with fat, and lo and behold, their, their excess weight goes away. And clinicians see this, like yourself, and they say, this is powerful to me. I don't need a randomized control trial to tell me that this is a powerful intervention to make these people appear to be healthy. But on the other side, we have these epidemiologists studying populations who say, whoa, but people who eat a lot of animal products seem to have higher mortality than people who don't. And the question is, which of these two perspectives is right and which of these two observations is the more powerful one? And I find the physician, you know, that I think every day we're more and more 
clinicians, more and more physicians and dietitians are aligning with this way of thinking because it, it, it works. And particularly so with type 2 diabetes where you're not so worried about long-term heart disease because if you can't get the diabetes under control, you're guaranteed to have it anyway. Well, I think it also gets back to good science. I mean, uh, I think that you've probably been challenged on a number of occasions, as have I, with Dr. Campbell's work referencing uh, meat, uh, China study. And I would say that it, it's not fair to look at meat eaters versus non-meat eaters and generalize from that because there are types of meat, there are qualities of meat. You know, by and large, grain-fed, hormonally treated, antibiotic-exposed uh, cattle are going to do some different things to human physiology by virtue of the higher levels of pro-inflammatory omega-6s, the changes in the human gut microbiome from consuming the antibiotics, etc. So I don't think it's, it's necessarily fair to do these retrospective dietary analyses of large populations and extrapolate in terms of what that individual sitting in your office today looking at you and say, Doc, what should I do? Uh, I, I think that that's not good science. And I would say that it's really far more important to know who is the patient that has the disease than to know the disease that the patient has. So I think your comments were getting at the whole notion of personalized medicine. I think it's really where we're going to go, especially as we see more and more ability to really analyze the individual data sets that people can generate. And, and I agree with you very much on that. I think there's a, a more significant issue with those, uh, using these epidemiologic studies to implicate meat as a cause of uh, obesity or diabetes or heart disease. When What they do is they'll look at a population, the most famous example being the nurse's health study, you're looking at 30-odd thousand nurses who have filled out dietary questionnaires. And you compare the nurses who, are, who eat mostly plant diets who have the, the top quintile of, of you know, plant-to-meat consumption versus the bottom quintile of plant-to-meat consumption. So you're comparing people, women who throughout the course of their life have made the decision to eat mostly plants with women who have never made that decision and are still eating a diet of mostly meat despite uh, clinicians and nutritionists for the past 50 years, in effect, at least suggesting that meat will cause, for instance, colon cancer and other disorders. So you're comparing health-conscious individuals to people who are simply not health-conscious. Either they're, they don't care or they're, they're not paying attention or they can't afford to pay attention or they're on the Atkins diet. Those are basically your choices. And the way it was described to me by one friend, he said, it's as though they're comparing uh, Berkeley residents. I live here in Oakland. The neighboring town next north to the north of me is Berkeley. As though they're comparing residents in Berkeley, California, who eat once a week at Alice Waters' famous restaurant, Chez Panisse, after their yoga practice, to redneck truck drivers in West Virginia, whose idea of a night on the town is going to Denny's, and then they decide that the difference in health outcomes is due to the amount of meat they eat. And I think this is very naive. And if you actually look at the research, the people who choose to eat mostly plant or vegetarian or vegan diets do so because they're health conscious. And then you have a whole host, and there also tend to be higher socioeconomic status. They tend to have better doctors. They tend to engage in a lot of other health conscious behaviors. So the question is, 
would these associations hold up at all if the epidemiologists were doing the rigorous job of trying to explain them by alternative hypotheses, which is what we started this conversation discussing, instead of just accepting them because they agree with their preconceptions? Well, again, you know, multiple variables takes me to yeah. the, the, the great uh, Dean Ornish, Gary Tabbs debates that uh, Did <laughs> I ever have been, great... become very popular on YouTube. I did. But, I mean, you know, that's a clear example that there are multiple issues that uh, needed to be considered. The meditation, the aerobic exercise that Dr. Ornish has popularized in addition to a very low-fat diet. And I don't think it's fair to uh, dissociate those issues from, from the results. Well, this is, and again, if you think about it, you can ask the question, what, what Dr. Ornish likes to do, and, and I believe in part to set his uh, well, uh, I'll buy that he does it because he thinks it's a, the correct way to think. He likes to establish in what ways his diet is different from, than, for instance, you know, the Atkins diet, uh, which also shows, at least in clinical trials, uh, improvement in heart disease and diabetes risk factors. So he says, look, my, my diet is low fat and that diet is high fat. My diet is almost almost a vegetarian diet because it's hard to eat any animal products at all and still keep fat content as low as I'd like. And this is a high animal product diet. Therefore, that's, uh, you know, the, 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 and then he makes an argument for why Atkins will kill you despite the clinical trials. But the Ornish diet is also low in refined grains and sugars, as is the Atkins diet. Virtually any diet that a clinician or a practitioner or a diet book author puts you on will be restricted in refined grains and sugars for um, a host of reasons. Ornish's explanation is the same reason I use it. These are going to elevate insulin levels and you don't want to elevate insulin because it's lipogenic, ironically. But that could be why his diet shows any benefit. Assuming it does, as you pointed out, he also recommends exercise and meditation and smoke. Right, and I think uh, there's a great, you know, this is old news now, but I mean, if people want to Google the A to Z trial, they'll see a head-to-head -head comparison of the Atkins to the zone. Uh, and uh, or rather also um, the Ornish program as well. And, and zone was included. So, and traditional, I guess, was the T. Well, let me thank you for your time. This has been really a lot of fun and uh, I think uh, some really terrific information. I can tell you we are waiting for your next book and I'm probably not the <laughs> only person saying that, am I? Well, I'm also waiting to finish the next book. As I said, as of September, it will officially be three years overdue. Which is what, what do publishers uh, have to t uh, say to you when your book is overdue? I've never done that. Um, well, they've been very patient because oh, the other good. two books are still doing well and they're proud, I think, of the arguments they're, they're proud of the role the books have had in changing the conversation in, in America and around the world. And they support me. A lot of the reason the book is so overdue is because of the Nutrition Science Initiative and the work that's entailed. And I think my editor is proud of that work as well. Nonetheless, I would like to get it done. I, too, would <laughs> like to read it. Way to go. Well, listen, thanks again. And I'm going to direct everybody to your uh, website, which is NUSI correct.org. So newsy.org. Uh, I'd love for the viewers to take a look at your website. There's, I was there earlier today, some great information. And of course, uh, this is a, an amazing book, um, about as good as it gets and, um, really excited about that. So, uh, I hope to see you soon. Well, thank you, David. It's been a real honor getting to speak with you today. Okay. Bye-bye. 
Well, what did you think of that? That was really very, very exciting. It's so great that there are people like Gary Taubes doing the work that he is doing. So again, uh, let's we'll follow him. We'll visit the website, that's for sure. And uh, again, I would just like to tell you, this is a, a wonderful book. I found it very, very helpful. And I often quote it quite a bit uh, in my lectures, uh, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It by Gary Taubes. Hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.